Hey, I think I've got everything turned on and I think we're good to go. It does look different here than at the Y from the front. You guys are a lot here. Um, so, I, uh, I, it's my privilege to be able to be here. My name is Josh Thrower. Um, we, I get to be here and I hope this helps Dan out if his family is anything like mine each time you move, especially the day after this morning was spent going, I have one sock. Where are the other socks at? I don't know where they ended up. Or, hey, why do you have no pants? Like, you need to go find pants. Yes, they're probably in a box. Oh, anyway, just put your sister's stuff on or something like that. Like, that's how it goes. And I, uh, so I, I appreciate the opportunity um, to be here to study God's Word, but I hope that it is also a help. Um, I'm going to begin with actually a kind of a complicated question. And the question is this, what are the most essential focuses of the church? If you had to like really pare it down, what is the church to be about? I mean, we have lots of things. Those are good. Um, Kids Connect, good. I'll mention that again in a second probably, but those are good things. But what's the essential? What are those things that, um, that, that are necessary really, or are good things, good focuses in every church? Um, we live in Canton, Missouri, just up the road. And one day I would love to see and am pursuing the possibility of a new church in Canton, Missouri. And because of this, this question is super important to me personally. What are the essentials? What are the basics? But I've been trying to figure out all week how this sermon fits into our series. We've been talking about the adoption as sons and daughters, and, and, and so it's been going around and in my mind, and I just, I, I never could figure it out. Like, yeah, it's about God's people together, sure, but it just felt so distant, and it, it just doesn't fit that theme. But I think that this is significant for this moment at BC um, because of where we are. We are here considering the possibility, not just today, but I mean, we're in the process of considering the possibility of a move, a move to a new location, a move to, in a way, new neighbors, a move to actually having a home that you stay in rather than you visit on Sundays or kind of a thing. Um, we're considering that move and uh, the possibility of settling down and, and what this permanent facility, what would that look like or feel like? And, and this is going to change us. We are going to have to be different than we were. Uh, and there are people I've seen, actually, I have an example in my head of a, of a church that, that changed, that moved, that shifted where it was, um, began in a new place, and they didn't change. They didn't ask this essential, what are the essentials and what are some of the other things that are going to need to change? And two decades later, I can tell you that church is wrestling with those uh, the repercussions of that choice to not re-reflect on who are we? What is the church? How do we begin again in this new place? What do we look like, not as um, in our situation here, what do we look like as BC at the, the Y, which is uh, one specific thing, but what would we look like if we were on the other side of town or in the middle of community in a different way? And so we need to ask those questions, and therefore this question becomes essential for us too. What are the most essential focuses of the church? Now that's really, uh, I, I don't necessarily always like to start deep, but that, that really is kind of the foundational question for me. And as I considered this passage today, I just kept thinking about the context 
Uh, we're going to be looking in 1 Thessalonians, um, so if you want to kind of find your way there, 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, and I kept thinking about what's going on between Thessalonica, the Christians in Thessalonica, and Paul's company at the time of this letter. We've been reading through, or we have been, we've read through Acts, and we uh, would pass this passage where he is there in this place in Acts 17, um, and, and really the history of all that's going on brings us into this letter that Paul writes. But I felt that, that I need to bring you along on the journey of discovering really how specific Paul's trying to be here. And so let me explain with a cooking reference. I don't claim to be a great cook or anything like that, but here we go. Where does chicken or beef broth come from? Where does broth come from? And the answer is, it, it's the base, uh, it's usually the broth, by the way, is a, a base for a soup or a sauce or something like that. Today, you can go to the store, you can buy a can of broth, you can go and you can get a carton of broth off the shelf and just begin there. But I was thinking about where did it all come from? Broth is a concentrate. You cook meat in, in water or something like that, the drippings and all that stuff kind of go together and you, the meat comes out and usually you eat that, but then you're left with this this um, this sort of sauce, but then you make broth by continuing to cook that sauce, and you begin to pull out the water. It evaporates out of it, and and more and more it becomes a flavorable, a flavorful. That's the word I'm looking for. Flavorful thing. It becomes something with more intense flavor as it goes, um, all without the extra that is the water. The broth is just the essentials of flavor. In a similar way, I think Paul is sitting in an environment that challenges him and the Thessalonians to think uh, very clearly about what the church is. Paul must speak clearly. He must speak simply about the essential things of the church and what they need to be about in the letter that we are um, going to look at. Don't mishear me at all. I want to say this up front. Other activity is good. Kids Connect is good. It's a helpful thing. We want to be about that. But I want us to see that through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul is trying to point the Thessalonians to the essentials, the basics. Where do we go when we find um, just that, that core of who we are as God's church? We, um, we, we could look back at Acts 17. And that's, again, where I said that, that we see Paul at Thessalonica. But in Acts 16, just before, Paul and his companion, companions, in case you um, kind of have forgotten, they were abused at Philippi, but the church has begun. And then in Acts 17, they find themselves in Thessalonica, and things are going pretty well. But then some Jews get upset, and they start a mob, and it kind of gets everybody upset. And we can assume that, that more happened, actually, uh, in that passage in... Um, 17, I believe it's verse 9, um, Jason in Acts, Jason's arrest is, is probably not the end of it. Probably kept going a bit longer. Pe this mob, this group of people was seeking to remove these Christians and these Christian ideas from their community. Paul and his companions had moved out and moved on and they traveled down the road to Berea. And so things start going pretty well. Their ministry takes off. People are um, are trusting in Jesus, and, and then those same Thessalonians who were upset before get upset again that he's just down the road doing the same thing. And so they go and uh, start stirring up crowds there too. And before it heats up too much, Paul moves along again. And he goes on to Athens, and violence and persecution has followed the proclamation of the gospel at this time. For the believers in Thessalonica, persecution was a way of life in the gospel. Because of the violence of the situation, Paul and his friends decide to send Timothy back. 
and see what's finally happened and encourage the believers if he can find any, if any are left. But what he finds, we discover, are a group of believers who are strong in their faith. And even though, even through this violence, we discover in 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8, that they have in fact been faithful and boldly sharing outside of their region, even beyond. Their message is going out. The message of Jesus is going everywhere because of these persecuted Christians. Paul knows that his physical return to the city could produce violence again. But he still wants to declare his love and his commitment to them while he's while challenging them to keep going in the essentials. So let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes for just a moment. What would you say if you knew that you may only have this one chance to encourage new believers in their struggle? What would you say? What are the essential things that you would point out and say, hey, this is key. This is important. What would you say? What are the essentials these believers in a rough situation need to hear? And I don't know what you would come up with, but I simply don't even know where to begin. I've thought about it, like here's my list, and I'd share it with you, and you could probably share a list with me, but uh, we would, I don't really know where to begin. There's so much to say, and I think that's the point. That is the power behind this precise moment in the Thessalonian church in which Paul is writing these letters in uh, these words in this letter. He's focusing on the key things. And I suggest that in our verses this morning, Paul provides three emphases for the church that are essential to who we should be as God's people. Three emphases, three things to focus on, three things that we are all about. And then just for the good measure. I'm going to add a bonus one to it. Not Paul's words, but I think um, I'll just give it away. Paul's example more that I see and challenged me in, the, in my preparation for today. So 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Let me read those for you. Um, we read them at the beginning of service. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would speak to us as we reflect on your word. God, that you would um, challenge us to be faithful. And God, that you would show us how we can, uh, he, we can follow you more faithfully. Uh, as we leave from this place. God, don't let us leave unchanged. Um, but God, just stir up that faithfulness in us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin with a bonus truth about God's people that I, I see in this passage. And my first thoughts on this passage actually come before we even look at the words of this passage in, or in these verses. We shouldn't miss the example, I think, of Paul for us here. Paul is praying and I think we need to let that sink in a little bit. Paul's praying. Sometimes the most profound things are the most obvious. Paul writes in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, um, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul and his people pray. Paul's and his companions constantly pray. And the sort of second obvious detail in that is to notice that Paul is praying in these verses for God to work. Paul's not saying, hey, church, here are three things that are important. He's saying, God, help these people in these three areas that are essential. God's people are driven to God. We focus 
on God. We recognize in all of our actions that God uh, is, in fact, God. We need to follow Paul's example and pray to a God who is sovereign over all things. Pray that he would intervene. And that's what God's people do. God's people pray, but more specifically, God's people pray to God. What's Paul praying for? Paul is asking that he, his companions, and these Thessalonians could physically get together again. Paul's asking that God would cause the Thessalonians to grow in love. And finally, Paul is asking that God would continue to move the Thessalonians towards holiness. These are not simple requests. Large obstacles stand in the way of each of these things happening. Don't miss that Paul prayed and is praying to the only one who could actually make all these things truly happen, God himself. As God's people, this should be in our DNA. This should be the first thing we do. This should be expected of us. If there's one area in my preparation actually for today that's challenged me the most, it's actually this one. I want to pray. I do pray, but often I get caught up in doing first. Often it is as I am doing that I remember to pray. It is uh, more often maybe even that I have tried something and am failing in it and realize, huh, I should be praying or should have prayed. If that resembles you in some way, uh, let's pray together that God would help us to overcome that, that we would pray first. Because I think that's a mark of God's people. But that's our bonus for today. That's not Paul's words there. That's Paul's example to me and to you. So let's look at Paul's first request. Uh, to God in his prayer in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. What's Paul praying for? Paul wants to be with these believers. In fact, this is the most immediately impossible request that he makes. Violence prevents Paul and thus he sends this letter. That's the whole point of the letter. But the difficulty of this request doesn't stop Paul from asking for that specific thing. Paul wants to encourage these believers. He wants to help them to grow. He wants to be grown by them in person. He wants to be with God's people. That points us to a truth about God's people, and that is that God's people were made for community. God's people were made to be together. It isn't an option. We should value togetherness. All of humanity desires community. Even the greatest introvert needs other people at some times. We were made for interaction. Community is essential to the human condition. Biblically, we can look back at the second chapter of Genesis, back at the beginning, and we see Adam alone, Adam all by himself, and this was not good. In fact, we can see that God initiated community in humankind. Adam needed a companion. And yes, there we talk about that in the sense of marriage and those kind of relationships, things like that. But the truth is God, uh, that Adam needed a companion. He needed someone. He needed community. Unlike us, Adam and Eve's community grew and grew through family. Uh, some of us have big families. Maybe that has happened to you too. Uh, but as time has, has passed, familial relationships have grown more distant. But the principle is still there. We need others. If we ask why, I think it leads us back to who God is. We are created in God's image. In fact, this suggests that we are individually uh, and the church collectively are modeled after God himself. On Sunday nights now, uh, even tonight, we have a Bible study in our home in Canton, and we recently began to walk through the Gospel of John. John doesn't even try to hold back on the communal aspects of God. He, he talks about God as a plurality of persons from the moment he begins his Gospel in chapter 1. 
We see all of the persons of the Trinity in Jesus' baptism, all in chapter 1, and then as it moves on, it just keeps going. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller states, Christianity alone among the world faiths teaches that God is triune. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. Our self-relational God knows what true community looks like. God then seeks to extend that relational community experience to us. This desire, this need for community, this need for relationship began before sin even entered the world. This is who we were made to be. We are the ones who are made to extend the relational experience of who God is. Paul specifically requesting that God would make a way for him to return and be with the Thessalonians once again. Today, the whole pandemic experience of the last several years has challenged us. But we must never lose sight of this essential need. We must be and do community together. In the end, the truth is this. The church should be the greatest community because it's modeled after perfect community in God. God's people were made to be together. This is fellowship. This is accountability and holding one another up. This is discipline and correction. This is sharing joy and love and pain and sorrow and sickness and health. This is journeying life together. The church should show the world what deep, authentic community looks like. We need to be about that. Paul makes a second request in, Thessalon in this um, letter to the Thessalonians, and it's found in verse 12. He's prayed that God would make these Thessalonians increased and abound in love for one another. This is actually huge. This is how we grow and maintain community. We were made to love one another. Through a sermon that I listened to recently, I was challenged to think about the ultimate foundation of love. Where does love come from? What is the foundation of love? And the answer is God himself. And if God is love, as the Bible states in 1 John 4, 8 and elsewhere, uh, then God must have always experienced love. If it's essential to him, then, then he couldn't be, uh, it's, it's defined by him, then, then he must have always experienced it. And the question is, how can God have experienced love before creation? Love requires an object. You love someone or something. And here we find ourselves back at the Trinity. God is love only if he experienced love in himself when there was nothing else. He could only do that if he were plurality of persons. See, if God was singular, then he would have had to create something or someone to love before experiencing it, and that just doesn't work. This would mean that God existed without love, and, and it then could not be a central attribute of God. But if God is triune, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, then he could have always experienced love and done so perfectly. This experience of love is what he extends to us. In fact, as his people, we have received that love which is beyond anything that we could understand alone or apart from him. Think of Jesus' definition of love in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. God's definition of love is one that serves and actually sacrifices for others. The persons of God, the persons of God uh, serve one another or he wouldn't be love. 
we can see this play out. If we look, if we know to look for it, as we look through the Bible, we'll find passage after passage. The Trinity working together, serving for each other. It is actually the overflow of that love that comes to us. Shocking element of Christianity is found in a God who would serve out, who would extend love like this to his creation. I teach world religions. I'm able to teach dual credit classes in a high school, and so I choose that or choose to take advantage of that. I teach a world religions class. Gods in other religions can extend knowledge or wisdom or power, but the God of the Bible extends himself. This is unique. God of the Bible willingly became a finite human in Jesus so that he could come and serve us and die for us. What does that say? It suggests to us that God wants to extend his love. He wants to extend who he is to us. If we are God's people, We've received that love, and it changes us. Paul prays that God would grow the Thessalonians in that love, and that's another truth of God's people. God's people love. We see need in the people of the church. Through the overflow of God's love, it must come out from us as well. We love others, and we serve their needs. Follow what I said earlier. We should always pray and then serve them and do that. Um, That's even one that I sometimes miss. We need to pray, but then we serve because we love because God loved us let's take it a step further look at what Paul says specifically praying for or what he's specifically praying for in verse 12 it says and I find this interesting he's praying that God would cause the Thessalonians to increase and abound in love for one another which we talked about and for all wait who's included in the all it's not shocking but it's important As God's people, we are compelled to love others. They are the all in Paul's prayer. Many churches love other people like themselves. They love and serve within their community of the church. What about us? Do we love the community outside of BC? Do we love those who won't come here and join with us? Do we love those who uh, who are just vastly different than us? Do we love those who are far from God? God's love in the persons of the Trinity overflows to us in Jesus, and this love changes us and should overflow to everyone around us. We begin to love like this. If we begin to do that within the church of God's people, um, and then that overflows into the community, it's going to make a difference. It'll spread to the all of Paul's prayer. It should flow to those neighbors we have. You see, God's people not only love in the church, it should overflow to the whole community. So we need to amend our principle, which I think I did on the slide already. God's people love both inside and out. Paul ends his prayer in verse 13, his third request, by asking that God would establish the Thessalonians' heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God may be able to miraculously make these Thessalonians holy, but this to me seems to be progressive. So how does Paul suggest that these believers become more holy? We can look in chapter 4 of this letter that Paul writes and see that he suggests the Thessalonians learn how to control their own bodies in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, this does mean physically controlling themselves, 
for us controlling ourselves, sure, which Paul mentions specifically, but this can extend to all sorts of other things that people lust after, like the greed of money or possessions, the desire for power or position, the want of a romantic relationship or the want of applause and praise or all sorts of things. We human beings are masterful at letting our lusts and desires drive us. Apart from God, we can become completely controlled by our selfish wants. A move towards holiness in our lives always involves removing the control of our sinful flesh. It's usually painful. That wasn't in my notes. I'm just thinking that. (laughs) It's usually painful. So what things control you? Is there something that you regularly fight against? How do you fight against these things? What are, we, what are we to do? How do we get along? Well, God provides a means for holiness to us, provides holiness to us through the gospel. Our weakness in controlling ourselves drives us to Jesus. We need Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of the perfect life of God on our behalf is our only means of connecting with God. The call to be holy as God is holy actually reminds us that we fail at holiness and God knew our weakness. And that's why Jesus came to this world. Jesus lived perfectly, died uh, to off- and died to offer us his perfect life in exchange for our sinful lives, which deserve death. We can only approach God in holiness in a holiness that is not our own. We need Jesus's holiness in our lives. It shows our need for the gospel. That's this message. Seeing our holiness through the gospel actually frees us, though, to be honest. We begin to understand holiness when we realize that it comes only through the grace of God. Through the gospel, we are changed by Jesus. But more importantly, we see more clearly our need for Jesus. Each of us do. This is where we start as failures and as sinners before a holy God. But here's the upside of the bad news. We don't have to pretend that we are perfect and have it all together. You don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. We are free to be honest with each other because we don't have to hold up some fake image of perfection. We can seek holiness. We can admit our failures so that others can help us to seek holiness because we don't have to fake it. We grow in holiness, but we are only holy because we are given Jesus's holiness on the cross. Finally, besides leaving us to realize that we can never be holy apart from him, God has given us another tool to grow us in holiness. We have each other. God's people in the church are given the community of God's people to challenge them, challenge us to greater holiness, to hold us accountable to what we know we should do, and to cheer us on when we remain faithful over our own lusts and desires. We have each other. And this is Paul's prayer here, that God would impart greater holiness to these believers. Holiness matters. God's people pursue holiness and find it in Jesus. We recognize that the gospel alone brings us together. We are a community changed by God's grace. We seek grace from each other and preserve our community through forgiving one another, seeking forgiveness. And together we can be honest and seek accountability to counteract our weaknesses. We depend on God's work individually and collectively to bring us to greater holiness. So let's think about those things that Paul was praying for the Thessalonians. 
These are the sort of key things. And remember, I added a bonus because that's just the way I did it. God's people pray to God. Yeah, we should be all about that. That's really how any of this is going to get done. God's people are made for community. We must hold that up as important, hold that up as a value to us. God's people love inside and out. We need to love one another. We need to love those outside of us. God's people pursue holiness. Find it in Jesus. Now, here's the disclaimer. I actually think that at BC, we're doing these things. And I hope that's encouraging to you because it is to me. Is there room to grow? Sure. We need to ask ourselves, where can we do more in these areas? How can we, as we think about transitioning to somewhere else, how can we keep those three things as essential to who we are? In our personal lives, are there rooms, is there room to grow? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. How can we individually contribute to community? How can we seek community? How can we grow in love and pursue holiness more? Yes. How can you do those things? So here's something, though, that is very interesting to me. What's this going to look like for following these essentials? Community, love, and the pursuit of holiness serve each other, in fact, I think, as a cycle. Each builds upon the others. If we are pursuing biblical community, um, it will push us to holiness for the benefit of the individual and for the group. Community also drives our passion for knowing each other's needs and seeking to meet those needs. That's love. Pursuing love on the other side as well for one another leads to serving one another, which builds community. Love also causes us to value success in the pursuit of holiness in others and causes us to pursue holiness in ourselves for the sake of others. Finally, a pursuit of holiness drives us to love others more as we seek to be more and more like this great God we serve. Pursuit of holiness also reminds us of our weakness and our need for one another, our need for community. See, as we seek each of these areas, they're not completely separate. They actually all build on one another. But to close out our time, you've been staring at these slides that I'm sure in the back don't make sense yet. Um, But what I think is significant and how I want to close this moment together with you is I want to think about where does all of this come from? See, we are to be at BC uh, all about community and about love and about holiness. And that should overflow in the right side of this little slide into the surrounding community. Our love should flow out of who the love we have for each other. Our community, people should see our community and say, that's what it is. That's what we want. And we should be a part of bringing as much of that as we can to other people as well. And um, holiness. We should be seen as people set apart who are doing things differently, who are depending on the gospel. And that should flow out to others, whether it's in sharing the gospel with them or just loving them and and understanding we are not that different. The difference is Jesus. That should be normal. That overflow should be normal to who we are. But our community, BC, should never forget that we are modeled on and we exist from the overflow of community and love and holiness of God. We are an expression, a mirror in a way of God. A 
or at least we should be. And that brings us to emphasize our need of Jesus. And I think this is an appropriate sort of transition. So here's what I'm thinking. We begin to think about at this point where we get all of this from, we begin to think about Jesus, on who he is, what he's done for us. And that brings us, uh, what brings us to him and we, how we are even allowed to bathe in the overflow of God's community and love and holiness. And that thought, at least for me, prepares me to think about the Lord's Supper. So let me pray for us, and I'll ask Sean to come up, I think. God, we thank you for, God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that sometimes um, we think about following you as so complicated, but in, in some ways it can be simple. God, help this community. God, help BC, help each one of us individually to grow in these things that Paul prayed for. God, help us to grow in love. Help us to grow in holiness and help us to grow in community. God, help us to be more like you. We need you to do this. We can, cannot do it without you. And God, we just trust in the future you are putting together for each of us and for this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.